0: Namaste and welcome to the Eight Woman Podcast. Our aim is to share stories of immigrant and culturally diverse South Asian women with unique experiences who've achieved success often against all odds. We hope their stories will inspire you to navigate your own journey. Just a heads up. We recorded this episode during the pandemic and have retained all the relevant references. Our guest today is author, columnist, and yoga guru Ira Trivedi. Chosen as one of BBC's 100 most influential women in the world in 2017, Ira is a truly global South Asian who has lived and worked in four countries, nine cities, and three continents. She moved to the US as a kid and after completing high school in Virginia. She did her undergrad at Wellesley before getting an MBA at Columbia. She flirted with the big bad world of Wall Street before deciding to chuck it all for the love of books and yoga. Ira has written many fiction and non-fiction books that have been translated into several languages. She also contributes to publications such as The Telegraph and Deccan Herald. Her writing generally focuses on issues of women and gender in India. Ira has won accolades such as the Devi Award for Innovation in 2015 and the UK Media Award for an investigative piece on bride trafficking. Her dedication to yoga has led her to start a not for profit, Namami Yoga, to teach yoga and life skills to underprivileged children. Ira currently lives in India and has two shows on Indian television one on Doordarshan and one on India Today. Hi, Ira. It's great to have you with us. Namaste. Thank you so much, Monica. After a successful Wall Street career, you decided to give it all up and move to India. How was that transition? Um, I must say it was pretty hard. In fact, when I
1: look back at that, it was like the twilight years. You know, I think there was two problems when you move back to India in your early 20s. A is um, living with parents. Because in India, as you know, um, most young women live with their parents. You know, it's safety issues and um, multiple other issues, but that's just the culture. So having to live with um, parents who you haven't lived with for many years uh, was a challenge. Um, way bigger than you would think, you know, because you kind of understand um, how you've become a completely different and very independent person when you've lived abroad, especially in the U.S. for so many years. The second was the pressure of marriage. As all young women in the early 20s, it was like, listen, now it's time to chuck everything you've ever done in your life and get married. Uh, The yoga journey helped. The yoga journey helped me understand uh, my parents, helped me understand society, helped me understand myself. And you still live with your parents? I spend actually a lot more time with my parents. I also have my own place. Uh, But during the pandemic, I was locked down with my parents and I loved it. In fact, I think that my relationship with my parents reached a really, really beautiful place, uh, maybe the most in my life, ever since I was maybe a baby. You know, I really, really learned to enjoy and appreciate their company. I had friends who were just alone, you know, in their apartments and in their homes. You start valuing the people around you when you were isolated from the world. And so that was a really, really beautiful experience for me.
0: There have been so many different, as you say, reactions to people being left alone during the pandemic. I mean, I spent it all by myself here in my studio in New York. And there are lessons to learn. How did your experience in the U.S. compare to working in India? So I spent my junior high years in the U.S. um, Junior
1: high and elementary school. And I found them very, very hard as sort of someone... Not speaking the way the other kids did, not dressing the way the other kids did, not eating what the other kids ate. It's even harder when you're in fourth, sixth grade because you're still so young. You really are quite innocent at that age. Then I had to transition coming back to India after being quite Americanized. That was a whole new transition of its own, coming back to very patriarchal culture. Where skirts had to be a certain length, and then coming back to the u s uh, in college, I was very happy to be in at all women's college Wellesley and that was a beautiful experience because I felt that Wellesley being a woman of color was something to be celebrated and being amongst women of something to be celebrated, I realized the value of that experience only later a place where you could be totally free, you know where all of these shackles suddenly were no longer existing, so college in that way was amazing. So I have two sisters, both were at MIT you know and At MIT, my God, they had these really, really difficult experiences. And I had this beautiful, blissful college experience. And then I think Columbia Business School, where I was at after such a highly intellectual place that, you know, when you are at these places of high intelligence, I found myself, again, in a very, very open place, especially New York City, very diverse. So I didn't feel those boundaries again, you know. So Wellesley really sort of helped. Just gain strength and confidence. I think coming back to India as an adult woman, uh, of course, there's challenges, but it's, it's kind of, I guess, life is like that. At every stage, you learn something. You know, at every stage, there's some boundary of the self
0: to be crossed. We're living in times now where women of color are really trying to find their voice and speak out. How was it working at the banks that you were working at? Wall Street's dominated by white men. I mean, there's just no two ways around it.
1: You know what I mean? I think even till today, if you look at the number of banks, women in high-ranking positions, I mean, the glass ceiling was, I think, invented at Wall Street. I didn't have
0: to contend with that for too long because I didn't really stay too long. If I had, I'm certain there would have been more challenges. In fact, I was wondering if that was probably a trigger point that brought you back to India. It was just boring. I just didn't see the point of it after a while. I said, I'm already
1: a writer and I was publishing books and, and I kind of, Um, had saved up enough money. I remember I said, when my bank account hits X, I'm going to go back. And for many, many
0: years, I survived on that. You come from a well-connected family. Did that kind of help you to start out in India or it was really not a factor?
1: Not really. Maybe actually being well-connected actually doesn't work in your favor. In fact, it's the opposite. Like, oh, why is she even going into yoga? This is not a field that uh, girls from well-connected families go into. Writing, is that your hobby? They expect girls from well-connected and well-educated families to sort of do other things, like maybe uh, go into the government or the bureaucracy or perhaps, you know, um, go into Wall Street, be a banker. We marry someone of the right kind and, you know, yeah. So it actually makes it harder and more challenging because I think you come with a very, very... Um, set community, society, world that you are expected to live in. You're culturally kind of um, molded into that, you know, ever since you're quite small, that uh, this is the kind of uh, person you should marry. This is the kind of life that you should lead. So when you try to break out of those barriers and do something which no one in the family has, uh, then it's always difficult. Like my grandmother was a writer uh, and she wrote so many books, but she was never it seriously as a writer, because it's like, oh yeah, she just lives at home and writes books. And then it's only after she passed away that people recognize that, my gosh, she was a very, very talented and prolific writer who wrote stuff of deep value.
0: Where did you find that strength in yourself to break the mold, find the courage to write a novel and then write Eight books? What pushed you to take the first step? I don't know. Anika, you know, I think, I think I wrote my
1: first book in like 30 days. I could not imagine now writing a book in 30 days. I can hardly write a page these days. You know, one page requires such immense focus and concentration. At that age, it seemed so easy. You know, I, I discovered the talent of writing. Actually, when I was at Wellesley, I remember that people would struggle in the library for hours and hours, and I would just sit and write. When I wrote my first book, I was 19. I told myself, if I write 10 pages every day, for 30 days, that's 200 pages. That's a whole book. Like, how difficult can it be? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I write one page an hour, that's only 10 hours. And I actually did that. Now, if I think about it, my God, there's WhatsApp, there's calls, there's... I don't know, Instagram. There was definitely no Netflix. You know, I think I was lucky to have a laptop and a strange dial-up connection. So all that
0: helps in the writing journey. You say that, but you've written eight books. So you you still, I think, find that uh, discipline. India and Love, one of your books, has received many accolades. How long did you research for it? And do you believe Indian women can benefit from the views you've expressed in that book? That book took, Five years and five years full time of my life.
1: Like I was doing nothing but doing yoga and writing, doing yoga and writing. It was the center of my life. You know that book, and it was my first nonfiction book. So it was a um a challenge to write nonfiction, right? Um, and to segue from being someone who was like known as a kind of a, a not very serious writer. Okay, yeah, she's popular. She writes women's fiction, or some people call it chick Um, this person is never going to be able to write a serious book. You know. That was a huge challenge in my life that I overcame, you know, um, in in the writing world, to be taken really seriously as a writer. You know, that book changed everything. And suddenly I'm writing for foreign affairs and writing for foreign policy and writing for the New York Times. So that was a huge thing for me. And I'm glad I did it because the rigor that I
0: took to write that book, I'm not so sure that it would be possible. What prompted you to take on such a serious topic? How did you even think, let me write this book? It was what was going on around me. There was so much pressure uh, on me and
1: everyone else around me to get married. At the same time, people had secret love lives and sex lives. Um, and then, you know, there was the whole nearby case happened. There's a whole dark side to the sexual revolution. You know, there was such a huge gender gap in cities. The more I dug deeper into the topic of what is driving India's sexual revolution, the more stuff came out. There was a divine force guiding me because literally um, information would come my way. You know, it was in the papers. It was on Twitter. It was on social media. It was the world around me and the kind of world that I was living in that drove me to write the book from 2000 to 2000. 20, those 20 years, what they did to India in terms of the marriage and sexual culture, it's changed the most than it's ever had in the history of the country. The way that marriage is conducted, the way that women have their, um, their choice in marriage, their, um, the way that you know sexuality, even things like homosexuality coming out of the closet, um, and the backlash in terms of sexual violence, sexual abuse, because women are exploring their sexuality. So this is that 20 years. In America, I felt there was more single defining moment. When India it's a mix of the rich and the poor and the middle class and beauty and dirt and poverty and everything together, everything coincides in the same one kilometer. You can't box it. True.
0: It's a melting pot and then it's got the cultural overtone. But I do think that... These issues impact women worldwide. One of the important things that we want to address with Ake Women is this fact that it is a sisterhood, it's a global issue across the world. So, to come back to your book, have you had women reaching out to you after having read it saying it's made a difference to them? Men too.
1: Men too. I mean, so many men have read this book and come back to me saying that this helped change my perspective. I was surprised at the number of Indian men who reached out saying that this
0: book change their views It help them understand certain things. And probably help them to appreciate their women more and support them, hopefully. Why do you think there's so much talk about rape in India and why is it so brutal? It's a brutal country from a young age. You know,
1: humanity is treated brutally. Like, when I think Delhi Crime a Netflix show... It's actually a really good show. That's the reality. There is extreme poverty here. There's also this very beautiful, genteel, spiritual side of India, which the whole world turns to. There's also this, you know, you know, these men are treated brutally from the day they're born. So they want to
0: inflict that kind of brutality. Do you see a silver lining? Do you see it changing? And maybe women will find more strength, especially based on your research. What do you think is the strength of the Indian women? I think... There needs to be
1: chaos for there to be change. The ocean churned, you know? This is the one kind of time, right? All of it has to happen before you become clean again, right? This is those two decades where it's happening. Uh, and there's still so much change, right? Legal change has happened. Um, women's uh, stories have come out, right? Like, look at the way media has changed. Bollywood has changed. Every medium is changing. Every single uh, place women are progressing right slow and steady steps there's no like big huge leap
0: that's happening but it's a slow and steady step and it's been a lot right past 20 years we've seen all of that and what do you think is the reason for this where do women get that strength to to bring about this change
1: i think it's inherent in all women not just India. I mean, this is something that we've seen in women across all cultures, right? I think women are, you know, bearers of burdens from the day that they're born. It's like minorities. So I don't think this is a specifically an Indian woman thing. We see that everywhere around the world.
0: there's a Netflix show that is currently popular globally called Indian matchmaking i don 't know if you've seen that. What sort of advice would you give young women about arranged marriages? Do you believe a woman needs a man to complete her? I think um,
1: all marriages are kind of arranged. The way that arranged marriages happen they may even love marriages happen It's like destiny provides those circumstances where um Either you don't feel like you have a choice or you don't think that you have a choice um, and you take that decision. I mean, marriage is awesome. Like, I have nothing against marriage and I hope to be happily married, you know, one day. But all marriages are like that, whether it's love, whether it's arranged, whether it's semi arranged, it's because that choice came into your life in some way, whether it's through your parents or through an online dating site. Or whether you were at that juncture in your life where you felt like you had to get married. And that's why even love marriages fall apart. Even very, very modern women. You know, the most well-educated, from the most uplifted countries, they really want to get married because the right thing to do at the
0: right age, that's no different than an arranged marriage. It could just be that it was meant to be because it's karma and so it happened. And many people will tell you that who've been married. They said that moment in time,
1: it's what I thought was the right choice. Especially my mom's generation. At 19, I didn't know my parents just made me marry him. But you know what? It was the best thing that happened to me because he's such a... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Wonderful man. So do you believe a man completes a woman? No,
1: I don't think a man completes a woman, but I do think that in this world, partnership is important. The pandemic has shown us how important human company is and how nice it can be. And that's why so many people who were alone suffered, you know, mental health, etc. So while I don't believe that has to be marriage, the partnership, it can be a boyfriend, it can be a living relationship, it can be um, a female best friend, it can be a female companionship, a female lover, you know, whatever it is. But I do think that having a companion is important.
0: From someone who played squash, how did you find your calling with yoga?
1: Initially, yoga sucked. I'm not going to lie to you. When my parents would say, do it or whatever it is. And, you know, and it would just be so boring. And there'd be some instructor coming over and he was really overweight. And then he would just fall asleep and start snoring during Shavasana. And it was like a whole unpleasant experience. Um, But then... You know, when I was in the US, you know, yoga was really cool and sexy, but I couldn't afford going to any classes. And then, you know, I came back to India and sort of thought about re-exploring yoga. And basically, what changed yoga for me was when I realized that there is a yogic life and then there's yoga. And there was so much of yoga beyond just postures, right? And while movement was important for someone like me because I had been very athletic my whole life and I derived a certain joy from the discipline and the movement of the body and the connection of the breath, just doing yoga opened up to a whole new world of something which was within, you know, versus outside. When you connect your own breath, you achieve a certain stillness of mind, which before no one had even spoken about. I think for a 20-year-old, meditation is not so easy. Yoga is easy. And during that yoga class, you can experience moments of meditation. That's what I found yoga really Really interesting then.
0: And do you find that there's a difference between the way yoga is taught in the West and uh, in India? I think in the West, they've made yoga into a very um,
1: consumer product, which has so much variety for everyone. In a way, it's good because it makes yoga accessible to everyone. You like nightclubs, you can go to nightclub yoga. If you're a senior citizen, you can do chair yoga. If you like goats, you have goat yoga. So most of India stuck to a very, very traditional form of yoga, you know, Hatha yoga. Um, and that's how 95% of the yoga that you find here is. You know, the way that yoga was taught to kids in India traditionally was not that great, but now taking from the West, there's so many wonderful ways of teaching kids yoga. Preteens need a different kind of yoga. It's not the same with adults, and it's not the same as kids. Americans have realized this. So I think there are things now that even India is learning from the West
0: on how to teach and communicate in yoga. Well, I think it's ironic. Yoga left India, went to the West, became popular, and then came back to India, and now it's picking up again. But tell me, as somebody who's so immersed in yoga, why do you think the world has fallen in love with yoga? So, Monica, I'm going to just... Um,
1: I'm going to ask that question in the context of the pandemic because we've seen a huge rise in yoga. In fact, Google Search is saying now that, um, you know, yoga at home, yoga online is one of the most searched things. Uh, Zoom founder did a webinar, and he said... One of the things he's most excited about with Zoom's offering was telemedicine and yoga. First of all, yoga is magical, and has immense benefits, right? This is something that we all know and has attracted and drawn people to yoga, especially once they experience it. Especially in the time of pandemic, what has happened is that um, people need it more than ever before, right? During a lockdown, when you couldn't go to the gym anymore, when you couldn't even go outside anymore, when you didn't have access to a park or a basketball court, or you definitely didn't want contact sport because that's not social distancing. You know, what do you do then? Then you can do yoga alone by yourself. You don't even need a yoga mat. And now it's all online. I feel as if online yoga, it's like the best experience. The world will go back to physical yoga because as a first experience, it's very nice if it's a real life, it's a real physical class because a teacher is there. They can guide you. You have an environment to support you. But anyone who's done even a little bit of yoga, they can come online and experience equal benefits and easier to do, cheaper to do, more efficient. You just click a button, more access. Even I got more access to so many teachers that I love. I'd have to pay thousands of dollars to attend a workshop with them. Now they have online workshops at a fraction of the cost. So even as a teacher, it's opened up so many doors of learning. Um, I, as a teacher, have been able to go out there to so many people. That said, actually, today I was missing teaching of real class. I said, man, I would love to make some adjustments. I'd love to feel the real life. So it'll be there. I think in the form of special classes, retreats, it'll always be there. But daily practice, 365 days a year, online.
0: You were involved with the first International Yoga Day. How did that come about and why did you eventually leave it? No, I'm still involved. I mean, whenever well, there's international uh, yoga days, I'm definitely involved. Um,
1: but it actually came around in a very interesting way. There was one particular yoga school, the Miraji Desai National Institute of Yoga, and there was a wonderful director there. And they needed some help with the scripting of the yoga day because the script had to be in Hindi and in English. Uh, and it had to be in an exact specific length to match the criteria of the Guinness Book of World Records. Because I knew him and because I was adept at both languages and I was able to teach in both languages, and I was a writer, I could script things in the correct way. But that's how I initially got involved. And then I just ended up being very closely involved in that program.
0: And how was that whole experience? Standing up at Rajput,
1: seeing yoga mats till infinity, mm. till you couldn't see them any longer. It was something exceptional, you know. I remember the sun rising and having the prime minister do a yoga session, every single other dignitary these outdoor mics are also quite amazing. When you speak into them, the sound resounds. It's like a permanent echo of your voice. It sort of goes, 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 because it's a wide open space. And then they keep on moving yoga day. It was a Delhi, and then it um, moves to different cities every year. So then I wasn't involved when I moved to Chandigarh or different, different places. This year it was supposed to be in Ladakh actually, but um, it was obviously yoga from home.
0: You promote yoga therapy. How can women in particular benefit from yoga practice? First
1: of all, I think women's bodies, they're more gentle than men, more fragile, right? A woman has less strength, um, less muscle power. The physical structure is different. And I think for that, yoga is very tuned. You know, you're using your own body weight to do most of the exercise. Number two, a lot of yoga asanas are aimed at the health of the endocrine system. Hormones. What happens is that a woman's body goes through lots of changes all through life. You know, in your teenage years, there's puberty, then there's pregnancy, then there's menopause. A lot of significant changes happen at different stages in a woman's life. And I think having a very strong endocrine system helps. And yoga posture will specifically focus on that. Then, of course, so many yoga asanas focused on just the health of the reproductive organs, right? A woman's reproductive system is a lot more complex because she gives birth. That's why prenatal yoga, postnatal yoga, so important. Any exercise is good. It's like going to a doctor. It's like going to a GP. But when you need specialization, you go to a surgeon, right? And yoga is like that surgeon. It's a speciality.
0: And why would you not go to the best surgeon in the world if you could? Why? If only people knew these benefits that accrue from doing yoga, they could start it at such a young age. It's important that it's taught to young girls in school. And it's not because it's considered a religious thing. What's your take on that?
1: I think we've gone pretty good. I mean, one program that I make sure I do every International Yoga Day is on DVU Urdu. This is me making sure that yoga is perceived for all religions. I recently did a program and there was three students from Pakistan in our online studio. It's soft power.
0: Body image is a huge concern. You've shared your experience with bulimia. How does that change you? And what advice can you give women in a similar situation?
1: I really worry for the young women of today who are going to be older women of tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen to the young women growing up now with Instagram as their mirror, you know, where every moment you're photographed. We didn't grow up like that. And there's still body image issues because we looked at physical copies of Vogue or whatever other magazines. I mean, for me, my struggle personally was when I went to the US, I Um, remember um, going into the cafeteria and being like, wow, unlimited pizza, unlimited donuts, unlimited bagel, unlimited cereal. Oh my God. You know, this is how my body changed in the US to lose the weight was a problem because we don't really know how to eat. Actually, learning how to eat is something I think is as important as learning how to spell and learning how to do mathematics. I hadn't been taught. And I learned it over many, many years of doing lots of different programs with lots of different experts to come to a point where today I don't have to think about weight anymore. But before I learned how to eat, I went through a lot of struggle. Believe me, it was so common. You know, when I was in college, you know, everyone had an eating disorder. India was much better. If you meet young Indian women who hadn't left, it was much healthier. And it's not the
0: same in India anymore. Now there are probably lots of eating disorders. When we talk about women and women's health, There's also women's mental health. And um, that leads me to the whole Me Too movement. You've been very vocal about it. How can a woman be taken seriously without facing backlash from society? And how did you navigate this challenge to your integrity? You know, um, Monica,
1: I think the Me Too was a very, very powerful movement across the world. And the way it erupted in India was um, unexpected. But in a way... Completely expected to. You know, it was a need of the moment because sexual revolution and Me Too was really part of it. As someone who was speaking up for women's rights, and I felt it was really my duty to participate. I think every single woman in India has been part of it. And I don't even think they realize that this is wrong. It's like now I realize, oh, what was happening in school was wrong. This is not normal. For boys to treat girls this way, for male teachers to treat young students this way, it's abnormal. But you don't realize it then. There was a huge backlash in India against the Me Too movement by men, by so many factors of society, just like there was in the U.S. You know, it's patriarchy at play, right? When women try to rise up, there'll be many forces, even women themselves, who'll try to put you down.
0: So how can men help balance this gender equality discourse? Men play
1: a huge part. If men didn't participate, there's no conversation. And men have. Men are fathers to daughters. Men are husbands to women. Men are brothers to sisters. And men, men play a very, very important role and they will continue to play a role. Many men have been supportive and the more men we get on board, the better it is. What are your future plans? Funnily enough, uh, right before the pandemic, there was a book I was working on. The name of the book was Beauty Epidemic. It was about the epidemic that is happening around the world in different places with the way that women looked becoming so important. It's so weird, right, that we're in the 21st century where women are more liberated than ever before. But in some way, there's never been more pressure to look good as there is today because of social media. Yes. You know, what we spend on diets, on beautification, in salons, in everything is so much more. But unfortunately, there was a pandemic, a real life epidemic with the coronavirus. And my book took me to eight different countries like Iran, Korea. Brazil, <laughs> I have, like all the oh, top rated coronavirus countries. So then, you know, the book is on hold for some time. Let the real pandemic sort of run its course and then we can talk about the beauty epidemic. I don't think I can even title the book beauty epidemic anymore because no going to treat it seriously because everyone now knows what a real epidemic is.
0: I have a rapid-fire round for you. What's your favourite yoga pose? Shearshatan, headstand. What do you miss about America? Mm, fresh air and I just miss the crispness of the of the air. <laughs> What's your favourite thing about living in India? Um, the food, home food. What's your favourite leisure wear? Uh, yoga clothes. Drink of choice? Uh, tea.
1: Kebabs or Tikas? Neither. Vegetarian. Unless it's a veg, beetroot tikka
0: maybe. Favorite pizza topping? Mushroom. Do you want children? Yes. Favorite Bollywood movie? Kunjan Saksan, I really loved it. Ira, on behalf of Egg Woman and my colleague Meza Jai Shankar, thank you for being a part of our show. It was fascinating listening to your journey and discovering your different avatars. For all our listeners, you can catch this and other episodes on a Woman's Facebook and Insta pages. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you, Monica. Thank you.